And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Crude Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with very, very special guest Kate Hartfield on the Crude Street Podcast. And welcome to the podcast, Kate. I understand you've actually listened to us in the past. I have listened to you for years and years, so it's very exciting to hear the uh, the intro up, up, up close and personal this time. <laughs> I feel like we, we owe you an apology if you've been listening for years and years. That's endless waffle you've had to endure. I mean, goodness gracious. How can uh, you put up great. with it all? <laughs> uh, it's, it's honestly been wonderful for me as a, an emerging writer over the last several years to get to know the industry and, and to hear your wise thoughts and a little rambling never goes astray. <laughs> Well, I think we should start by congratulating you on, I think it's your third novel, was it your second published novel, your third novel, The Embroidered is, Book? Yeah, my second published novel, and I have a couple of novellas as well. So yeah, yeah thank you very much. Which I think came out at the beginning of the year in the UK, was that right? And then, then Canada announced just not long out in the States. Yeah, that's right. It came out in February in the UK, uh, and The Embroidered Book is out in North America now. So it's out everywhere now, uh, all yeah. around the world. Yes. But it actually made the London Times bestseller list. Yeah, yeah, it made the Sunday CLS, Times. I mean, yeah, no. yeah, the Sunday Times bestseller list, and it's also in its fourth week as a national bestseller here in Canada. So uh, I'm amazed. It must well, be pretty surreal because most people start off working in in you know, comparative obscurity, and and you always wonder like, how will your book be received? And you've kind yeah. of gone through the path of sort of you know you've yeah you know, I mean in, armed in her fashion came out from, I think, Chai Zine, so it's a small press in mm -hmm. Canada. You had a couple yeah. of novellas from Tor.com, but this mm -hmm. is kind of like the big time, and it must be pretty surreal. It's very surreal, yeah, and it's really interesting to see the differences between different sizes and different kinds of publishers and uh, the way that they um, that they support a book. You know, small presses are, are great in their own ways. Uh, so it's been a real education for me, and uh, certainly it... it it's been many years of, you know, I have several novels in the trunk as well, long before that. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I've been working on short fiction for many years. So there was a long time of uh, obscurity that I wouldn't even qualify as being relative. It was absolute <laughs> obscurity. Yeah. You know, my, my agent was working for 15% uh, of zero dollars for a long time. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, so, so this is, is amazing. And, and because of that, I don't take it for granted at all. And I'm really, really gratified by all of the work that HarperCollins and Harper Voyager have, have put into the book and the way booksellers have embraced it and, and readers taking a chance on this big historical book. Uh, I don't take that for granted at all. Well, I, I want to con congratulate you, I guess, on sheer chutzpah for, for a second novel now. Armed in her fashion, uh, it, it, it got the Aurora, Aurora Award. It was a finalist for the Crawford Award. But going from that for a 658-page novel for your second novel indicates some level of confidence or madness or both. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it, and I, I didn't start out thinking I was going to write this enormous book. I thought it would be on the big side. You know, my, my I think my first draft was about 135,000 words. Uh, but by the time it had gone through several rewrites and I had worked on it with my editor, Jack Renanson at Harper Voyager, uh, it, it ballooned up to 80, 185,000 words. And honestly, I think it needed it. It needed to be a big book. And uh, we talked about making it, you know, a duology or even a trilogy, but it wouldn't have been natural to cut it in the middle. There wasn't really a spot to, uh, to cut it. So a big book Ooh. it was. So, yeah, it's, it's about 650. So where, where does the broader... Sorry, no, you go ahead and finish. I was going to say, so, so where does the story of the embroidered book start for you? Because, I mean, we see it now in 2022 as a very handsome book that's being well-received around the world, but it must 
you know, go, go back several years. Yeah, it was actually the end of 2015 when I started writing it. And I haven't worked on it exclusively in that time. You know, I've been working on other things, um, interactive fiction and, and other books that, that I have in the pipeline. Um, so it hasn't been seven years of just writing that, uh, but it was late 2015 when I started it. And there were a few different, uh, you know, sources for the idea of the book. Um, and uh, I think one of them was um, the fact that I thought Hillary Rodham Clinton was about to become the next president of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, okay. in 2015, those halcyon days, you know, uh, so uh, I thought I was thinking a lot about privileged, powerful women and uh, and political power and um, and looking back on the history of that concept. And I also happened to be reading Antonio Fraser's biography of Marie Antoinette at the time. Uh, so that was feeding into it. And I happened on a line early in that biography, just a throwaway line where she mentions that these two sisters, uh, the archduchesses at the time, uh, Antoine and Charlotte, who would become Marie Antoinette and, and Maria Carolina of Naples, um, were such good friends when they were children that they got into trouble all the time and they had to be separated. And being a speculative fiction writer, I immediately thought, oh, it was magic. You know, that's what <laughs> <laughs> that, that must be the reason that they were getting into trouble all the time. Uh, so those, those, you know, disparate thoughts, I think, um, an interest in the history of uh, women, powerful women within patriarchy and, and how they navigate that um, duality of privilege and, um, and marginalization and going back centuries and, and the Enlightenment and what effect all of that had. Uh, and then, um, you know, just a real interest in these, these two girls who, who became such powerful women. Well, you were interested in powerful women, even in armed in her fashion, except then you were in, what, medieval, medieval Bruges. Is yeah. there a sense, uh, you're, you're moving up a few hundred years here. Yeah, uh, I tend to bounce around. Yeah, I've got, uh, I've got a couple more in the hopper, and, and, um, and I can't talk about them too much because uh, they're not solidified and announced yet, but um, they're different time periods all over Europe again. So like, I, I jump centuries all the time, and uh, I, it's very inefficient when it comes to research, uh, but that's okay because I love research. So. I have to ask you just about the first novel. Did you go to Bruges and hang out there? I did not. Um, I haven't been there. Uh, and I ended up um, looking at a lot of primary sources uh, because even though Bruges is, you know, still very, very medieval, I know, uh, I was there. it's, it's, it's not, uh, it's a lot has changed even so, you know, despite the fact that it's such a well-preserved medieval city. Um, so I ended up looking at a lot of contemporary maps and reading contemporary accounts and, and that kind of thing to try to get a sense of it. Um, so I would have liked to have gone to Bruges and one of, maybe one of these days. I just wanted to mention that I was there once and my first, uh, you're right, it's medieval, but it's not medieval. We were staying in a medieval holiday inn, but it was a holiday inn. Mm -hmm. um, and I kept thinking, this is, I want to read a fantasy novel set here because this is such a fantasy novel environment. I mean, it's, it's got mm -hmm. the canals like Venice, except it's all much smaller scale, of course. Uh, and there's that actually kind of terrific crime movie in Bruges, uh, yeah. which which captures the sense of the place, even though it's a violent gangster. With this one, I've, I've, I wanted to go to Naples. I've never been to Naples. And now you've made me want to go there. So my question yeah. is, did you, did you visit, uh, I guess it, I, I guess Versailles and places like that are not hard to get to at all for anybody. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, no, I haven't been to all of the places in, in the novel. I have been to Versailles. Um, I haven't been to Naples. So again, that was one that I really had to fill in the gaps of, uh, doing a lot of primary source research. So 
I read all kinds of contemporary accounts of what it was like in the 18th century. And I read Charlotte's diary and, um, you know, and, and also just things like watching people's YouTube videos from today and oh, sure. you know, everything I could to get a sense of it. Uh, Cause it is such a fascinating place with those underground tunnels. And of course the volcano right there, mm-hmm. an amazing spot. So uh, yeah, it's first on my list for when I can uh, get back to Europe. <laughs> a lot of travel, my travel was disrupted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I wondered about that. <laughs> yeah. Was there a moment with uh, the embroidered book and with the story of these two Habsburg sisters where you considered telling it as a straight historical or was it always going to be a alternate history fantasy kind of novel? Um, I don't think I ever considered writing it just as a straight historical. Um, I think because the idea of magic was there right in the beginning for me with that yeah. that, I, that spark that I had. Um, so, um, yeah, I think, I think that was there all the way along and I really enjoy that puzzle of putting... Um, putting magic into the events of known history and uh, seeing how it might explain some of the weird things that have happened in history. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was speculative all the way along. Yeah. And, and how did you come to the version of magic that you use? Because, I mean, the embroidered book of the title is a, basically a book of spells, and it's a form of magic that is that really bears a heavy cost for anyone who uses it. So how did you come up with the idea and start uh, developing it through um that was a it was a lot of work because i wanted to do several different things with the magic system and uh you know i think magic systems are so crucial because there are big questions of you know ethics and uh and of course you have to make it fit into your plot <laughs> you know there are pragmatic yeah. concerns uh you know when, when it comes to magic systems uh so i had i had all of that in mind and i wanted to do a few different things with the magic system i wanted it to feel like it was old, that it had been around for a while. Um, mm-hmm. So there are some parts of it that feel medieval, that there's something ineffable happening that goes back centuries and there are rituals that nobody really understands, but people keep doing it that way anyway. Um, but at the same time, I thought, well, it's the Enlightenment and um, there will be um, a secret society governing it because, you know, 18th century, you have to have a secret society. Um, and uh, and they'll have some sort of, you know, systematizing of it because because they're thinking about math and science and and um, you know because there are these great advances happening in natural philosophy that should be in the magic system as well. Um, so that's all in there. And then I wanted this idea of sacrifice because I wanted to explore thematically what my characters were, the choices that my characters were making because the magic sure. is a metaphor for power. You know, so they, you know, they're they're making sacrifices to wield power and they're they're losing bits of themselves and and so the magic is. Um, you know, a way to literalize that idea. Yeah. And then, of course, that means that the the nature of the characters, in a sense, changes over time, mm-hmm. if, if only because, you know, you, there, there are key moments where, I mean, uh, the sort of thing you, that people sacrifice to perform a, a spell are either things that are intensely personal to them or memories or whatever else. And so they lose memories of people that they've known. I mean, there's one or two moments where it almost makes events sort of come undone because key mm-hmm. things have been forgotten or surrendered that didn't seem important to the person at the time or weren't important enough. Um, mm-hmm. But how was it trying to track the change in a character as the story evolved as a what you know, through this? Because I mean, plainly it's I mean, to me, when I was thinking about it, what I thought was when you see, when you see these characters portrayed in history as much, uh, they're often uh, quite cold and distant seeming characters. And some of mm-hmm. that coldness logically comes from the system of magic that you've, uh, proposed in the book was that a, a deliberate intention mm-hmm. yeah absolutely uh you know one thing that was always in my mind is that tension between 
you know, I wanted to make these women uh, people that characters that you would connect with, that you would empathize with, that, that you'd be yeah. emotionally engaged with, um, not just encyclopedia entries. So I wanted to have that. But at the same time, I was very, very conscious that um, these are, you know, flawed humans working within an extremely flawed imperialist system in the age of colonization and the age of, of rising racism yeah. and slavery and um, that their power did not come without cost to many, many other people and, and did mm. damage, you know? Um, so I wanted, you know, I didn't want to write a sort of hagiography of Marie Antoinette. You know, I'm very sympathetic to her, as is clear in the book. You know, I, I feel, I feel um, like I know her in a lot of ways now, uh, but I didn't want to let her off the hook as well. Uh, so I think yeah. that that the magic helped me with that as well to sort of say, look, look at the choices that these women are making and look at how horrific they are in some senses. And, and that allowed me to show that side of them as well. At least I hope I did. I think it was a very fine line to walk for me. It, it, was, a, it, it was a question that I had when I started the novel, uh, given, uh, you're right, given our concern with colonialism and racism and, and gender, and the, the, given modern concerns in general, choosing mm -hmm. to write about very wealthy royal scions of very wealthy colonialist families, that's mm -hmm. not automatically a choice of characters who are going to be sympathetic to the reader going in. Mm -hmm. And especially, yeah. you're right, all the movies about Marie Antoinette, uh, up to and including, uh, uh, um, what's her name? Sophia Coppola. Sophia did, Coppola, yeah. Very strange movie, I thought. But, mm -hmm. but nevertheless, she doesn't come across historically as a very sympathetic character. Most of us don't know about uh, uh, the Queen of Naples at all. I mean, that mm -hmm. was, it, was, it was a figure I was familiar with by name. Um, yeah. But, but I think. You, so, so, so you, may, you, you managed to make them into sympathetic characters without, you're right, without a hagiography. Mm -hmm. And the, the thing that fascinated me also were the peripheral characters. Cagliostro shows up and he mm -hmm. strikes me, and he's not a major character, but he strikes me as being a kind of figure uh, like, like John Dee is in one of John Crowley's novels. He's kind of a liminal figure between the Middle, Age, Middle Ages and the Renaissance. And he's mm -hmm. got a foot in both camps. And that makes him really sinister. Yeah. Yeah, and he was he was such a, a puzzle for me because you know he was involved. He was actually um, prosecuted in, in the diamond necklace affair uh, that that changed public opinion about Marie Antoinette and is is sort of one of the pivotal moments in the novel and and in her life. Uh, so he was there. He was present, and of course he came from Italy and uh, you know spent a lot of time in Sicily, uh, which was part of the Kingdom of Naples uh, at the time. Uh, so he connected the two sisters that way. And of course, he was this this figure in, in alchemy and in the occult uh, in the 18th century. So I couldn't write a fantasy novel in these two countries and ignore his existence. But at the same time, I didn't really know what to do with him. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I didn't know why he was even involved in the Diamond Necklace Affair. There's never really been a good explanation for what he was doing. And he was just sort of randomly grifting off, off people. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, he was weird. So I, I had to put him in there, and a lot of the a lot of the secondary figures were like that for me. That, that you know, there are so many people I could have written about, but some of them were just you know, I must I must have this one. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those novels which, and now it's it, it's a new era in novels where you talk about whether it's pleasantly Googleable or unpleasantly Googleable. And there were characters who I did not know about. I can't remember her name, but the 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 uh, the woman portrait painter uh, mm -hmm. who shows up as she's a terrific character. I didn't know anything about her, although I realized after reading your novel, I had seen her paintings. Yeah, yeah, that would be Vigée Lebrun, probably. Yes, right, um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But one of the yeah. questions I had in general uh, was your use of fantasy as a kind of 
alternate history and a not alternate history. In other words, it seems to me at some point you needed to make a decision as to whether you're going to do what Tim Powers called secret histories, where basically in the end, the historical record as we know it is intact, mm -hmm. uh, which I've started thinking of as a kind of closed loop alternate history. There's an alternate history, but by the time it's over, we're back to our own history. Mm -hmm. uh, or you could have gone full-blown alternate history and, and just changed everything. Was that a yeah. decision that you had to make? Yeah, I, th I thought about that quite deliberately. And I, I think about that with everything that I started writing because I, I do tend to write in historical settings. And so every time I have to think, you know, with Armed Dinner Fashion, it's it's an alternate history. Even though most of the events are the same, uh, there's there's a hellmouth and, and you know, uh, mm. magical creatures running around and stuff. So it's, it's and then and that changes um, what would have been known history. So it is, it is alternate, I would say. Um, but the embroidered book is is secret history. Um, there are moments in the book when you start to wonder. I think when it, it starts yeah. to get a little bit, uh, I'm a little bit in the eye of the beholder. But it's it was written pretty much a secret history, and I did think about that. Tim Powers is is a great influence on me, and um, you know books like The Stress of Her Regard, when the way he he fits all of that, um, all of the magic into the known history that way, uh, and and you know that's very much what I love to do as well. Uh, so I, I find that really fun, and, and because um, you know, one of the things I like about writing fantastical history, highlighting how weird the real history actually was so that the magical interpretations don't seem any more strange than the real ones were. You know? <laughs> well, one of the things that uh, Tim said at one point about one of his novels, uh, and I've heard this from uh, another, I've heard this from a mystery writer named Stuart Kaminsky. He used to put all kinds of historical figures into hard-boiled detective stories, the Marx Brothers and Judy Garland and all the, he had Einstein and Paul Robeson together. And he, he said the same thing about his mysteries that Tim said about his fantasies, which was that you can't prove it didn't happen that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's one of my favorite parts of uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell is just a footnote where uh, it is explained that the reason that an army didn't make it to a battle on time was that Jonathan Strange was moving the roads around. Uh, and the real explanation was that the army got lost, you know, the, the, so that uh, they actually didn't make it there. But then in real life, you know, they just got lost. And you think, well, which is stranger that an entire army gets lost on the way exactly. to battle? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I, I, love, I love that kind of stuff. How important was it to you when you're building this world of, you know, 18th century Europe of Naples and Paris to show different paths of power for, you know, for women in the story? Because I mean, at the time, a lot of the story, a lot of the power that they that they they, they can access comes from from marriage, from having children, that kind of thing. And yet, this is a situation where you see comparatively, at least to my imagination, forward thinking people, people who are concerned beyond their own sphere, uh, looking for ways to change the world around them. How important was it to have something other than that that traditional path to power in the story? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, that was one of the things that interested me early on, you know, going back to Hillary Clinton was mm. the question of what, of what makes a woman powerful, you know, sure. um, you know, that that so much power does come through husbands and, and dynasties and, and children even today. And so much power comes through, um, you know, looks and glamour and, and fashion. And, uh, you know, there there's not a whole lot of difference, I think, in, in who the powerful people are, and especially when it comes to women, because, you know, they're drawing on those sources in a lot of cases. <clears throat> But then, of course, there's, you know, power has never just been limited to those sources either. And I think Charlotte is an interesting example. You know, Charlotte yeah. being, you know, much like her mother, the Empress and, and like Catherine in Russia, you know, very much um, 
having a, a political project and wanting to see it through and uh, very interested in philosophy and, and that kind of thing. Marie Antoinette um, was not, you know, she was not, she, she read books and she was, she was pretty smart, but you know, she was not interested in a political project at all. and was basically just trying to hold everything together <laughs> and failed. It's a kind of, it's kind of, um, I guess, sub subset of the Bechtel test for, cause you, you did have a conversation early in, when they're still kids and they're reading Montesquieu and they're reading Voltaire. And these are women talking about books that they're reading. And the first thing you realize is, well, yeah, they read a lot and they read a lot of, uh, you know, important philosophy and they thought about it, uh, mm -hmm. in, in a way that, I don't remember reading about historical women characters before being that intellectually curious and, and yet mm -hmm. intellectually curious in completely different directions at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is something that has been lost or, or erased or, you know, <clears throat> however cynical you want to be about it. And it definitely was there. There's, um, there's a line in one of the letters in the book. I, I'm pretty sure that it made it in um, that was in a historical letter from Maria Teresa to, to Antoinette, where she chastises her for reading too many Protestants. And I think it was David Hume that she was reading. And, and so the Empress was like, you know, don't read those bad books. They're written by Protestants. And, um, you know, uh, Catherine in Russia, you know, wrote her own yeah. projects and her own laws and, and rules and all of that. And yeah, and, and there were several female mathematicians at the time in France and scientists. And, you know, so a, a lot of that really interested me as well. And I wanted to at least have some nods to that. I mean, I think the most unimaginable thing for me, the hardest part to get my head around is that with, uh, with Charlotte, uh, is that at least in the, you know, in the real world, and some of it's in, in the book, she's 18 children during all of this. Mm -hmm. So she, she's basically coming to basically rule Naples and be mm -hmm. an immensely powerful political figure, uh, in her world whilst being pregnant for the vast amount of time. That seems mm -hmm. almost unimaginable to me. And one of those things that doesn't get Discussed enough, if you like, that there's this extra burden. I, mean, I realize that mm -hmm. being extremely wealthy, there's all sorts of support and people help look after mm -hmm. children and the whole nature of family relationships in that context is slightly different. It's not like she's nurturing everybody every single hour of the day and cooking meals and nonsense. But still, mm -hmm. it seems like a remarkable thing in that context and makes her seem even more remarkable both in the book and in the real world. Yeah, yeah, that, that it was amazing to me too. <clears throat> I mean, I think... That's a really interesting um, piece of the puzzle with historical fiction because it's a kind of thing that doesn't get written about in books very often for obvious reasons, right? Because it is extremely difficult. You don't you don't want to have a cast of characters that big, um, and uh, you know, to have eighteen children and and have the have any kind of emotional connection with the reader is almost impossible, especially when you have other things going on when her her family is not the focus of the book. So how yeah. do you do that? You know, so I I really seriously considered doing what Lin Manuel Miranda did in in the musical Hamilton and just erasing the kids. You know, he I think he yeah. cuts Hamilton's kids down from eight to two or something, and. Um, I thought about that, but then because, as, as you say, Jonathan, that's such a it's such a huge factor in um, in the lives of these women that I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to erase it that way. <laughs> so it was a real struggle. And of course, you know, everybody's got the same name. You know, sometimes they'd name kids after their deceased siblings, and you know, so it's such a tangle. Um, but the ho hopefully the readers will, <laughs> will stick with it. And there's like always in the beginning. <laughs> it is one of those novels where the dramatis personae is really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Well, I never find it confusing, but it's also interesting because, of course, um, Charlotte has such a different experience than Marie Antoinette. You know, mm -hmm. in that Charlotte immediately has children, so her position is 
at least reasonably secure and then becomes more secure as she's given birth to male heirs. Whereas for the first extended part of the story for, and it's not giving anything about the book, I don't think, uh, for Antoinette, there mm-hmm. are no children for, for various reasons. Mm-hmm. The book. And that really sort of underscores the sheer fragility of both of, of their positions as women in these political environments. Yeah, it was so crucial to them to have children and to have male children, you know, that, yeah. that there was, Antoinette was living in very real fear uh, for years that they would annul the marriage and send her back to Austria and that that would break the alliance and that Austria and France mm-hmm. would go back to war because that marriage was one of the things holding the alliance together. Um, so, you know, to have that, to have that, um, that situation where, you know, your husband doesn't want to consummate the marriage for whatever reasons, everyone knows this. And the fates of two countries or more, you know, rest at least in part yeah. on that. Like like that that situation. And meanwhile, you're, you know, she was a teenager at the time, you know, dealing yeah. with that. Um, so that was one of those things that even though, yes, she's very, very extremely privileged and wealthy and flawed and, and all the rest of it, I felt that I could understand that and that we could we could get ourselves in that mindset and say, wow, that would be an incredibly difficult situation. In addition to which she had to deal with, and, and when you mentioned Hillary Clinton, that occurred to me that name came up once or twice when I was reading the novel. The, the degree of the, the discourlessness and the, the pornographic attacks on Marie Antoinette, mm-hmm. uh, which again, I had some sense that there was something going on. And I'm assuming you're not exaggerating uh, that part of the history at all. No, there's, there's more that, that could have gone in the book for sure. Yeah, there were um, the pamphlets of the day were very much the, the social media of the time. And um, there were all kinds of I mean, the, the funny thing is, is that they accused her of having affairs with everyone except for the person she was actually having an affair with. <laughs> oh, <I do. laughs> you know, so, um, you know, so that and we're pretty clear that that affair did happen now. You know, their their love letters have been um, decrypted and everything. And so mm. that's all in the public record. Um, but, yeah, they, they, uh, the the poems and the pornography and the, the cartoons and all the rest of it. And, um, you know, and a lot of that has influenced how we see her now you know these images of her as the harpy as madame deficit as as this um you know a hedonistic queen of france uh, a lot of that came from propaganda well it, it, it was it was planned character assassination i i was it really at some point i was thinking next they're going to accuse her of running a pedophile ring out of a pizzeria um, <laughs> exactly. exactly the kind of the tone of these things and the fact that she survived with any kind of a historical reputation at all has is is impressive and Mm-hmm. But I guess one of the things I'm wondering about is there's so much, so many figures in it, major and minor figures, uh, most of which most American readers won't know about. We'll recognize Lafayette, you know, we'll, we'll recognize Marie Antoinette, obviously, in a handful. May, maybe we know something about Marie. Mm-hmm. But writing historical fiction of any kind today, do you have any sense of what you can and can't assume is knowledge on the part of the reader? Yeah, that's that's a constant question for me. Um you know, and, and I also have heard uh, from publishers, you know, and, and agents back when I was querying agents, you know, that um, a concern about what Americans in particular would know uh, when it comes to European history, um, you know, just because that, that those tend to be the stories that I gravitate towards. Uh, and, um, you know, there's always a concern about that. And, and also just when you're researching for years and years and years, you tend to forget what is common knowledge and what is just the thing that you know. Uh, so, you know, a good editor can, can help with that. And my editor would sometimes, you know, nudge me and say, you know, can you gloss this for the reader in some way? Or, um, you know, or it's, you know, sometimes you pick your battles and you just take it out because it wouldn't be worth three paragraphs to explain 
Sure. Um, yeah, so that, that is a sort of a, a constant struggle. Well, um, I, I wondered to go back to uh, the embroidered book be, being a bestseller in, in, in London. I've often wondered if there's a difference in the audience about assumptions of between uh, English, European, actually both of your novels are in continental European, they're not even in England, mm -hmm. between that audience in general. My, my assumption has always been that British readers have made more of a ongoing genre out of historical fiction than American readers have. I mean, it's not just things like Wolf Hall, but there's a long tradition of best-selling historical mm -hmm. fiction in England. And mm -hmm. I'm not sure it's matched in the United States, and I'm not sure what the situation is in Canada. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, there does seem to be a little bit of difference. Um, you know, there seems to be a little bit less concern with um, keeping the SFF and historical fiction boxes separate yeah. Uh, yeah. when marketing to readers. Uh, so I think part of that has to do with Waterstones and how Waterstones markets books and mm -hmm. um you know, they, they really seem to get behind really beautiful historical fiction and don't seem to have any concerns about if it's genre. So I'm thinking about books that have come out recently, like uh, The Leviathan, which I read, sure. um, Pandora, uh, which just came out recently. You know, there's a, a and of course, all of the, the Greek myth retellings, which are, you know, exploding with, with no sign of abating, um, you know, right now so and they seem to be really i think they're doing well in the us as well but but the uk really seems to be getting behind them and here in canada um you know indigo i think has really positioned my book as historical fiction um I, i've seen it there more often than i've seen it in in fantasy uh and i have no problem being in either i mean i come from the sff world that's where i feel comfortable um but wherever the readers are i'm happy to meet them there you know so uh i, I do think there seems to be some differences in marketing and, and I, I, I don't know, but I wonder how much of it has to do with bookstore chains and just, um, you know, the culture. It, it makes sense. I mean, one of the things I noticed even when, when my Barnes and Noble was still open down the street is that they, there was never a section called historical fiction. As a matter of fact, most, I think most American readers don't think of historical fiction as a genre, whereas mm -hmm. 70 years ago, it would have been a major genre. And, and so now it becomes either it's either shelved with mainstream novels or you're right. If it's SFF, it'll it'll be shelved there. Yeah. Um, or yeah, drift. I mean, the, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Jonathan. Yeah. I was just saying or, or, or drift. I mean, I, what I see certainly here in Australia is, you know, something like the embroidered book. I mean, the embroidered book, when I went looking for it in a bookstore, uh, it was in a mainstream section of the bookstore. It wasn't in the genre section at all. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it came out pretty contemporaneously with the latest Guy K book. Which it has a few few parallels with at least being a alternate fantasy set in a alternate version of Europe to some you know, to greater or lesser degree, and they were very much similarly placed. So mm -hmm. I, I guess it is a, a local cultural thing rather than anything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I haven't been down you know to the states to see how how the book is being positioned there in person, and um, it, it does interest me, and it, it interests me with you know forthcoming books to see you know what. Um, how books will hit in different countries and, and what the um, what the sort of doorways to readers are and whether they are different at all. Um, it's a very interesting question. And then, of course, there's the thing that it's not just the, the nature of the story, but it's the imprint. I mean, you know, your mainstream published books both come from, or all come from, uh, centre of the genre imprints, Tor.com, mm -hmm. which is very much, we're going to file it as science fiction, fantasy or horror, and Voyager, which is very, very much 
a science fiction or fantasy kind of thing. And almost any Voyager title automatically goes there, regardless of what it is. So that yeah. structures as well. And it also, I would imagine, because it must have been an interesting journey working out how you were going, they're going to package the book. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. because it, it, it is not a overtly fantastical cover, mm-hmm. you know, which is an interesting choice given the nature of the book. Mm-hmm. Were you intimately involved with, it, with, with the creation of the cover? Not really. It was one of those situations where um, I got the the draft by email, you know, and you have that moment where you're just terrified to click on the image because you think, oh, no, what if it's horrible? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so, you know, I, I steeled myself when I opened the image and, and it was perfect. It was gorgeous. Uh, we didn't make any changes. I think we, we changed a little bit of the, the log line text. Um, I think that was it. And yeah. um, Andrew Davis, who was the cover designer, did a, a fabulous job. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it had to do a lot of things that cover it. It has yes. to convey historical fiction. It has to convey the idea of two queens. Um, it has, and it does, it does hint, you know, especially with some of the text on the book, uh, it hints at the idea of there being magic as well. Um, so yeah, it, it's really impressive that it manages to do all of those things. Cover designers are amazing. And you, you give them a title, which is irresistible to a designer, I would think. Um, <laughs> Just this past week, there was an exhibit at the Art Institute, Art Institute here in Chicago of Morrison Company Designs. William Morris was basically his wallpaper and design company. A lot of stuff done by him. And I thought he would have loved to have this book to work with. This would have been a perfect Kelmscott Press kind of uh, edition. But so it, it is a gorgeous looking book. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine? Oh, that would be wonderful to have. <laughs> Gary was asking a little bit earlier about contemporary concerns about politics and race and other kind of issues coming mm-hmm. into fantasy and whether it was a thing. And in, in a way, the I feel like is actually the main thrust that's changing in contemporary fantasy. This book, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you've yet read it or will read, read, read it, most directly in my mind connects with an R.F. Quang book, um, uh, Babel, which is coming out mm-hmm. later in the year. And it's the same sense that having grown up reading fantasies, historical fantasies or whatever else, where the underpinnings of the world are not questioned. It's now mm-hmm. finding ways to, if you like, preserve the story, advance the story and deliver a story, deliver characters, at least some of whom you can would consider to be likable mm-hmm. or relatable, whilst also interrogating in a way that's not heavy-handed. Was it difficult or challenging to not make contemporary concerns in the embroidered book heavy-handed mm-hmm. they're not they're, it's beautifully handled yes thank you yeah I, I think that's always one of those things that um is, is tricky because readers will become to it coming to it from different perspectives mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. some people will will think that it's well handled and other people will um you know will will not uh, there's there's you know we talk all the time in historical fiction about uh, the tiffany problem you know the idea that the readers don't know that they think they know something and and they will think that the writer is wrong and and often, you know, social issues and social change is a big Tiffany problem because readers will assume that there was no such thing as as a women's issue in the 18th century, right? Like they'll they'll assume that gay people didn't exist or that black people weren't in Europe and things like that. And so um, so you have to sometimes uh, give a little bit of a, um, a sort of an explanation or acknowledge yeah. that, you know, yes, this is a real thing. You can go look it up or uh, just do something to kind of help those readers along, whereas other readers will be coming to it with with a bit more knowledge. Uh, so um, it can be really tricky. And uh, yeah, I think people have different reactions to it. Um, I'm really looking forward to reading Babel. It's coming from my same publisher, Harper Voyager. And 
uh, it looks like a fabulous book. So yeah, and I think there are some really interesting things happening with historical settings um, that way. Mm. I think there's so much to explore, uh, you know, and one of the things that I, you know, I, I love titles with multiple meanings. Uh, and, you know, so one of the things that I wanted to do with the title is to imply that that history is always being embroidered and that history itself is, is you know, is a construction of some sense. Uh, so fiction contributes to that. And you were saying that this is sort of what you're going to be doing next. I mean, I don't particularly want to go too far into uh, that because you said that's still to be, to be sort of firmed up, but it does seem like this is the space that you really want to be investigating at this point, using these interesting moments in history as a way of, if you like, unpacking and revealing other other things. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, what uh, I seem to be drawn to, especially in long form, you know, with, with short stories that bounce around, but uh, with long form ideas, they, they tend to come from historical settings for me for whatever reason. And, uh, um, and I am particularly drawn to Europe, uh, you know, maybe it's because my, my, um, my heritage is from there. My, my dad was born in London. I don't know. Um, and and this, I think a lot of the stories that I grew up with um, are, are European stories, European folklore. Uh, so I do have some trunk manuscripts that uh, talk about Canadian history, and maybe I'll return to them uh, and return to that setting. But uh, I do have some in the in the pipeline that are set in Europe coming up. Uh, so one that I can talk about is uh, I'm actually writing my first tie-in novel, uh, which is an Assassin's Creed novel, which is coming mm -hmm. out in August. Yeah. So that one's done and it's it's ready for pre-order and it's all ready to go. Um, and I might do more uh, Assassin's Creed books. And uh, and that's really neat because, uh, you know, the Assassin's Creed video games are set in historical settings. So it was a natural thing for me to try as a to try tie-in writing. Uh, and I do have another couple of um, my own original standalone novels in various states of repair. I'm actually doing, even though it hasn't been announced yet, I'm actually doing... Uh, uh, developmental edits on the next one, uh, which mm -hmm. is, um, I really love. It's another European historical setting. And then I'm halfway through the draft of another one after that. So I have, you know, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> it sounds like you've coming. got a lot to play with. Is, is there, uh, are we going to see any connections between, is, is there, is there any kind of overarching version of, uh, of, of European history? Because one of the things that struck me in, um, the embroidered book is when when Charlotte arrives in Naples, she finds that there is a secret society of magisters of, of, of magicians called the Order of thirteen twenty six, which mm -hmm. is about the same date that uh, Armed mm -hmm. Inner Fashion takes place, which makes mm -hmm. me suspicious. <laughs> yes, that was um, a coincidence, but it occurred to me as well. <laughs> so, yeah, I I had different names for that order. I had I had a whole other plot line that got cut that had a different name to it. And um, I went through, I can't remember how many different names for it and none of them seemed to work. And my editor just, and I just kept going back and forth on it. And finally I didn't want just the order because I thought, well, that's a little bit boring. So let's yeah. add something to it. And, uh, and I ended up coming up with um, the year uh, of the papal bull that was, that declared witchcraft to be heresy. Ah, okay. Uh, and so that would, would be the beginning of a time when magic had to go secret kind of thing. And so that was the idea behind that. I, I don't talk about it very much in the book at all, but it's that's the sort of backstory. Um, but it is that that time period has always fascinated me. You know, Armed Inner Fashion is, I think it's 1328. And um, it, and in my own headcanon as well, 
this is this is very nerdy, which I've never told anyone. <laughs> um, Armed in Our Fashion also takes place a few months after the name of the rose. So, <laughs> oh I, great, okay. <laughs> so I I figure that you know William Baskerville is coming up from Italy, you know, at the time that uh, Armed in Our Fashion happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, yeah, you mentioned the Assassin's Creed book, and one thing which. I, as being a reader of my age, as someone who never really game tends to under under a value, and maybe mm-hmm. Gary and I has the same kind of bent. How how important has gaming been to your development as a fiction writer? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's you know it's not really one of the central things, but it's definitely been. Um, an aspect of it, uh, you know, Assassin's Creed games have been big in my household for many years. My kid plays them, mm. I play them, my partner plays them. So, um, you know, and I've, I grew up playing Civilization going way back to the original, very pixelated versions. Wow. Um, so, you know, gaming has always been, um, uh, you know, part of my life. Uh, and I do, I wrote two interactive fiction novels for choice of games, and they're both in historical settings as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's, uh, it's been really interesting for me as a writer to help me become a little more playful, I think, and mm-hmm. and not get stuck in the idea that there is one platonic ideal of the plot that I have to somehow carve out of the no- the marble, you know, and find that, that maybe the story could be several different things and, and they would all be good and interesting. Um, so that frees me up a little bit, and I think gaming helps with that. Are, are you are you confined to a specific magic? Are you confined to the rules of the game when you're writing a? a tie-in novel pretty much um yeah pretty much although assassin's creed is great that way because uh it's a pretty big universe and um so the story that i am writing i mean other than the fact that there are these two factions um templars and assassins uh and i seem to be drawn to having warring factions in in history as well um you know that that setup is there, and the sort of basic ideology of the two factions is there, um, and there is some fantastical background backstory to it as well. But other than that, the characters and the story and the plot um, were basically mm-hmm. up to me, as long as as Ubisoft approved it. Uh, so you know, somewhat to my surprise, as someone who hadn't written tie-in fiction before, um, it was very much you know uh, just just like writing any other novel uh, in a large sense. I had a few things that I had to I had to start with, and I had sure. to you know write the synopsis and get it approved first. But um, yeah, it wasn't that different really. So it feels like I mean, there's a lot of snobbery and always has been around tie-in fiction. Uh, mm-hmm. Quite often, deeply undeserved snobbery, uh, and it also, in fact, to some degree trips over and spills over in a similar way to fan fiction or whatever else. Do you feel that um, the Assassin's Creed books are as much your books as books like the embroidered book, Mm -hmm. or does it feel like work for hire for you? Because I know a number of people have written uh, tie-in fiction. Some of it Mm -hmm. has been strong imaginative work that's deeply their own, and some Mm -hmm. has been creative typing, expanding on screenplays just to make them into bound bits of text. Mm-hmm. So, like, where, where does does your experience sit? Yeah, this it really feels like a me book. Like, it feels like something, um, you know, that that I had I was, I was handed a few different paint colors and told to make a painting out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, like that. It feels very much like a lot of my thematic concerns are in the book. Um, you know, and and I, I, you know, I used to be a journalist, so the idea yeah. of writing something by deadline for money is not, you know, shocking to me. And so mm-hmm. I think the other way would be fine too. Um, sure. You know, I, I wrote a video game, um, some dialogue for a video game and some um, other material for a video game called evil genius Two, which was tons of fun. Um, and 
and I did it in part because I wanted to learn about video game writing and I thought it'd be a fun project. But that one, I think you couldn't find me in there. Like you, you wouldn't know it was yeah. me unless I told you, um, you know, because it was just really me trying to fulfill the assignment. Whereas with the Assassin's Creed book, um, I really did think deeply about, well, what do I want to say um, about this time period? It's, it's set in uh, the 1850s and, um, you know, w- what sort of concerns thematically do I want to work into this and all the rest of it. I mean, it's also, it's, it's fun, it's an editor, but um, it, it definitely feels like if you came to it just having read my work and not being interested in Assassin's Creed, I would like to think that you would still like the book. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's been nearly 10 years since a pair of Ragged Claws came out. So mm-hmm. you've been writing, you've been publishing, I mean, obviously I'm, I would assume writing far longer, but publishing for nearly ten, 10 years with three novels, couple of novellas. Do you feel like you're getting a stronger feel over time for the kind of stories that are yours that you want to be telling? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I think, uh, I think it's a sort of a dialectic, um, approach that you know, um, I started out. Um, I started out very much on the literary side. I started out as uh, a very prose-focused writer and uh, not at all plot-oriented. And um, you can tell if you read my early manuscripts that they're <laughs> shapeless. You know, I, I got all these rejections that said, you know, you write you write beautifully. Why don't you try to tell a story? You know. Um, yeah. So I had to learn storytelling. Uh, so I, I sort of went off and very deliberately did that, you know, uh, to say, okay, well, how do I tell a story? Um, you know, not that there's only one way to tell a story. Uh, and I think that that's an aspect to it as well is, you know, having done that now, I feel like, okay, now I can come back to myself and say, okay, I've, I've, I've learned some rudimentary apprentice level things about how to tell a story. Um, how do I bring myself into it and make sure that it's me? And how do I bring that love of language and everything else into it? Um, so it's a little bit of a, a pendulum feeling, uh, but I do, I do feel like, uh, you know, things I'm starting to notice what I want to write about, you know, the, a lot of um, the concerns that I had when I was a journalist about the state of the world and politics and everything sure. else. And, and the sort of overarching question of, you know, how did we get here? How, how did we get to this place in 2022? And I think that's a lot of what I tend to explore. Well, when you Dolphins were, in the nor- I was just going to say, even before you were a journalist, when you were when you were a reader, and you said you kind of came out of SFF, but I'm I'm sure you read read very widely. Were there books that you read when you were younger which made you think I want to write that? Oh yeah, for sure. So I'm I'm one of those people who you know I wanted to be a novelist since I, I can remember since I was a kid. Mm. And uh, definitely books were always what I wanted to do and, and were huge in my life. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, it, it's interesting to me. I was just thinking recently that when I look back at when I was a kid and I would go to the Winnipeg Public Library and come home with my armfuls of books, um, I didn't make any distinction between um, the historical fiction that I was reading and the fantasy. So I read a lot mm-hmm. of Rosemary Sutcliffe. I read a lot yeah. of Susan Cooper. And I didn't see any difference between them, you know, that stories were stories, you know, and, and so maybe that's why those two genres seem to mix in me today is that that's what I read most of when I was a kid. And I didn't realize that they were supposed to be separate, you know, or um, actually the, a wonderful Australian book, um, Playing B.D. Bo uh, by Ruth Park was hugely influential, a, a time travel yep. no- novel from mm-hmm. the 80s. Um, and I, I reread it all the time. It just, it was so spooky and, and the, the spookiness of, of the past really got under my skin with that novel. Um, so I, I, I read a lot, um, you know, and I read some, a lot of other things that were really formative for me that, that maybe wouldn't be obvious. Like Dune was really formative for me. Um, even though I don't write space opera, uh, maybe mm. I will, but, um, 
you know, that, that the sort of political concerns and love of language sure. and love of history is, is probably in there as well. Yeah. Well, I, I think that um, Rosemary Sutcliffe's name, Sutcliffe's name comes up all the time when I'm talking to fantasy writers, it seems, it seems <laughs> especially British fantasy writers. But I think, I think part of what was there, there was a sense of fantasy even in the, in the non-fantastic novels. And then mm-hmm. there were novelists like Mary Stewart who just would move into fantasy sort of imperceptibly and move back yeah. again uh, so that um, reading some of the, or Mary Renault, reading some of those things as a kid, you don't know whether they're fantasy or not, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's all just old stories, you know. Right, exactly. Yeah. One thing that you and I have in common, Kate, is that we're both living in Commonwealth countries, mm-hmm. you know. Um, how is it for you as a writer being, you know, living somewhere like Canada with the United States right beside you, with Europe off to one side, you know, mm-hmm. it's got to, to some degree, color your perspective on the world and on story coming from that sort of country. Because even though Canada is always seen as being closely tied to the United States, really it's mm-hmm. history goes back to the UK and all of that to a very strong mm-hmm. amount. Uh, is that something that you feel, that sort of view of being from a smaller part of the world, an important part of what you do? Because I, I mean, that's something that I've found when I, when I talk to Australian writers, that quite mm-hmm. often it's a very outsider point of view compared to what you get if you're inside, say, North of the United States. Yeah, I think it's huge. I think it's huge in, in my work. Um, even though I haven't had any books set in Canada published, um, uh, it's a big influence on... Uh, I've written a lot of short fiction set in Canada, and and um, I think it and it goes deeper to, you know, even things like the way that stories end. Um, I have a friend Hayden Trenholm who has a theory, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I think is probably at least partly true, which is that short stories in American magazines with American editors um, tend to have neater endings than. Canadian short stories that uh, Canadian writers tend to be more open to ambiguity um, and lack of agency, you know, at the end. And, uh, you know, there's probably, if, if that's right or wrong, I've, I've certainly found, it's hard to tell in your own life, right? Because you get a rejection from an American sure. editor about the ending and, and you don't know, okay, well, maybe the ending really is terrible, um, you know, or, but, but maybe yeah. not. Uh, so I think there are maybe small things like that, like cultural differences that, are almost invisible and probably invisible more to Americans. Um, and, and I'm sure that they're magnified for cultures that are even more removed than Canada, right? Yeah. But in the way that we tell stories. Um, so, and I think maybe Americans might sort of expect Canadians to tell stories in a very American way, and to, to a large part we do. Um, but there, there are probably some concerns that are distinct. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think we do have, um, we have an incredible literature um the book that i'm reading right now uh, is called uh, buffalo is the new buffalo which is a book of short fiction by chelsea vowell and it's it's metis futurism and it's hmm. fantastic you can get your hands really? on it um yeah it's amazing yeah it's, it's really really good um and and she actually has uh sorry footnoted um her own stories uh as an academic uh that she wrote so um chelsea vowell buffalo is the new, bu- new buffalo <laughs> i mean that is um you know, and I don't, I don't want to uh, talk about an Indigenous person being Canadian because that's a fraught conversation, but someone living in Canada. And, um, you know, and, and I'm, as I'm reading this book, I'm thinking this could not have been created by any other, a writer from anywhere else, you know, and it's, it's amazing to read a, a book and think that, um, um, you know, so that's really exciting to see that it's not homogenizing and we're not all going into the, the big American pot. It's a lovely yeah. pot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you've written and published, well, you've You've published a couple of dozen short stories over the last nearly 10 years. 
how important has writing short fiction been to developing what you do? Um, it seems to I mean the apocryphal version of writing short fiction. One of the things it does is it's, it's a laboratory. It's, it's a shorter time span in terms of the amount of effort to learn things. Has it been a, a important laboratory for you? Absolutely. Um, and you know, when I mentioned earlier that I, I had to deliberately learn storytelling and short fiction was a big part of that for me. Um, because you know, you could iterate more frequently, uh, in a short form and you can see sure. the shapes of stories faster and you can talk about your endings and your character arcs and that kind of thing. Uh, and even flash fiction, I've written a lot of flash fiction and uh, even Twitter microfiction has been great for just getting it down to the bare bones of what is a story, what is a character, what is an arc, um, and how can you do it in a sentence? So that's been really useful in terms of thinking about story. Um, and I love short fiction. Um, I think novels are always going to be where my heart is. That's what I always wanted to yeah. do. Uh, and, and I don't treat short, short fiction as, you know, just a, just a laboratory, but, um, but it has been a really good way for me to, to learn. We're 450 years into a pandemic, it seems right now, <laughs> possibly yeah. never to emerge. Yeah. Um, I would imagine that the, 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 the final writing and then the editing and rewriting of the embroidered book happened during that time. Mm -hmm. How do you, do you feel that influenced what you're writing? Yeah, I think it has. Um, yeah. I mean, so many things go into it that, that it sort of all goes into the blender and then you have to, you pour it out and you think, well, what, what's in here? <laughs> you know, but, um, and it's funny because a lot of people have asked me about the smallpox in the important yeah. book because, um, uh, because it's, it's quite a big plot line that yeah. several times in the book when yeah. smallpox changes the course of history. And inoculation and everything else, yeah. Inoculation, yeah. And and funnily enough that um, you know, and I wrote about smallpox in the Alice Payne novellas too, and uh, you know, which happened before the pandemic. Um smallpox has just always been really interesting to me, the the way that it has influenced history. And so that that was written for the most part before the pandemic. Uh so it didn't really come out of that. Um but the editing you know, who can say how much of the updating process and, sure. and the things that I'm working on now, uh, I'm sure it's in there. Um, there, are, you know, the, the book that I'm in structural edits on right now, um, you know, has a lot of themes about isolation and community and, and, and finding home and, and things like that, that I think are sort of a few steps removed from the pandemic. Uh, but the feeling, the emotion is there. It's something I've always suspected or wondered. Uh, I mean, we're getting obviously a lot of plague fiction, a lot of, you know, mm -hmm. the plague is now the new nuclear war, I guess. But I wonder if the most interesting fiction to come out of that is exactly what you're talking about, a sense of isolation, trying to find a sense of place, trying to find, find what happened to my community, who really mm -hmm. is my community since I don't go to the office anymore. And those mm -hmm. questions aren't necessarily questions that are addressable in in, in plague stories, in traditional mm -hmm. plague stories. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting to see how how those concerns um, might be, you know, shaped by different speculative ideas. And uh, yeah, there may, there may be other things that, um, uh, that come into it, you know, like the, the book that I'm working on now um, is a very old, has a very old dragon story in it. And it's a retelling of, um, of a myth with a dragon. And, and, you know, a lot of those ideas that, you know, the same reasons that, that a dragon was interesting to Tolkien, you know, are, are yeah. interesting to us today. Mm -hmm. You know, like there are a lot of the same ideas about, um, well, all, all kinds, all the things that a dragon can help you explore about uh, um, being alone and being inquisitive and being, um, being afraid of your own past and everything else. Uh, so, you know, 
Um, and I mean, which goes back to another writer that I read all the time uh, when I was younger, who is uh, Robin McKinley. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think all of that goes into the mix and it may be, it may be difficult for future historians to, to look back and say, well, that, that came from the pandemic, but maybe not. Well, I don't know. I don't know. It, 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 it struck me that there were at least two anthologies, maybe three that came out, uh, based on the Decameron. The, 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 I think the New York Times did one. I forget what the other one. Uh, and I remember they were, they, were, uh, they were making all the same assumption, which is if you want to find out the effect of the plague um, in, in Florence, you don't mm-hmm. look at the frame of the Decameron. You look at the actual stories and see what they have to say. And, mm-hmm. and, and then you get a different perspective altogether because some of those individual stories uh, clearly are, are addressing concerns that came out of that disease, even though it's not about disease. Mm-hmm. And I suppose the same yeah. thing could be said about the Canterbury Tales. Uh, so, so I, I think it's fascinating. I think it'll take twenty or thirty years for us to figure out what major impact this has had on fiction. Uh, mm-hmm. But then again, you know, we uh, those of us who have spent time being science fiction historians have been spending seventy years now trying to figure out what the effect of the atomic bomb was on fiction, and we're still not there yet. Yeah, and even you know, I, I, looking back at the First World War and and the nineteen nineteen yeah. pandemic on fiction, you know, and and you yeah. see little bits and pieces, right? Like you see, like Mrs. Dalloway has a weak heart because she had the the flu, exactly. And, right. You know, but 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 it's so obscured and and uh, it's not direct. So I think it's going to be the same for us. With the world as it is, though, uh, given you have this major new book out that's being very successful, are you getting a chance to get out and actually enjoy that, to be part of the the publishing process, or is it still very much shut down and locked down and happening you know, far away? I mean, it must be mm-hmm. frustrating and exciting to have a book that's a, being very successful in the United Kingdom while you're mm-hmm. sitting in Canada. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit. I've been able to get out a little bit. Um, so I haven't been over to the UK, um, and I'm, I might have if things were different, um, you know, in a normal time. Um, but yeah. you know, I hope to be publishing with with Harper Voyager UK for a long time to come, and and so I I do hope to get over there soon. Um, I actually was there. The, actually, the last person that I hugged before lockdown was Jack, Jack, my editor at Harper Voyager, because I was in England uh, in March, 2020, and we actually cut our trip yeah. home to come home. Uh, so, so I but I haven't been back since. And uh, so, yeah, so, so I feel, I do feel somewhat lucky in the sense that the book came out now as opposed to last year. Um, so um, we did just have word on the street in Toronto, which is an outdoor book festival. And so I could do that because it was outdoors and um, yeah. that was my first real event. And I did um, some masked signings uh, of stock and that kind of thing here in Ottawa. Um, but I'm not going to any cons in person. I'm, I've, I've booked, you know, I'm frankly sick of online cons, but at the same time, I'm enormously grateful. Like I'm so grateful they exist because I've been to so many of them and, and sure, you know, having sure. a book out, I've just signed up for all of them. So, um, you know, I'm going to the online world con and, and um, I've been to on, online cons this spring. Um, but I, I hope to get back to in-person convention fairly soon. Uh, the last one, last world con I went to was Dublin and um, I hope to at least make it to Glasgow and, and maybe, maybe something before then. Yeah. Well, I mean, it wouldn't wouldn't kill you to come to Chicago. I mean, come on. I know, I know. I'm, I'm <laughs> not that far I'm away. Chicago, and my family's in Winnipeg, so you know. Oh, okay. It's not, it's not that. Or New Orleans, it's, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. New Orleans too. Yeah, that's it's a possibility. I have a friend driving down, so I I may yeah. just up and decide 
to go to something this year. Like CanCon here in Ottawa, which is a small but wonderful convention, um, is happening for the first time uh, since the pandemic started yeah. uh, in October. So I have plans to go to that one, um, you know, pandemic willing. Yep. Um, and we'll see. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm starting to, I, you know, one aspect of my own life over the last few years, um, I spent a lot of my time caregiving for my mother-in-law with dementia. So she was, mm. she was very vulnerable. Uh, so I was extra cautious because of that. And uh, unfortunately, she passed away a month ago. Oh, I'm sorry um, to hear that. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, she was she was ready to go. Um, but um, so now I'm, I feel like I'm kind of in a new era in my own life as well. That okay, sure. well now I'm not caring for a vulnerable person, so I can be a little bit less cautious. I can go out and do yeah. things. So I am hoping to get out and meet readers more. Well, just in yeah. just in terms of lockdowns, you could consider yourself fortunate to have written such a great lockdown novel. I mean, if you're going to be locked mm -hmm. up in your house for a, a year or so, and you need, I, I didn't have this feeling because I'm under deadlines and that sort of thing. As I mm -hmm. told you in an email. Email. I didn't even know I was going to read the novel uh, un until you graciously sent us a copy. And then I just fell into it. And I thought, this is exactly what I wish I'd had a year ago when I didn't dare go outside at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wonder if you've gotten responses like that from readers. Thank you for making my house less boring than it was. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, if you're going to read a big book, this is the time to do it for sure. Um, and it's, it's, it's been interesting. One of the reactions that surprised me um, is that a lot of people are quite intimidated by a big book. And maybe it's because I come from the fantasy world where we have so many of them that it didn't really occur to me that, that but, but some people are intimidated by it, which is totally understandable. Um, and these days, you know, even though we have all this, ostensibly we have more time, you know, our concentration is um, worn down by so many things and it's hard to read. Um, that said, I'm going to interrupt and say, because yeah, yeah. Gary said to me, like, this is a big fat book, but I've got to say, like, yes, but no. I mean, this is not a remarkably fat book for a fantasy novel. No. No, it's I mean, not really. Yeah. To Green well, Angel Tower, the Tad Williams books was an absurdly long book. It was like so 1,100 yeah, pages. Novels are like 1,000 pages each. Yeah. Yeah. This is... yeah. yeah. It's it's really, it's not that, I've you know, it's. Um, and and yeah, in fairness, it's, it's well, it does not, not read long. Yeah. It does that, not and that's read something long. I have heard as well, which is really gratifying, is that I have actually heard from, from readers say, you know, it looked it looked big, but, you know, I didn't find that it, it dragged on. And. I've actually heard from people who've read it in two days or something. Gosh, you know, there there was a time in my life when I could read 600 pages in two days. But um, it's, it's very immersive. Well, but I think, not, okay, to defend my comment about big books, when you're trying to position a novel, which is essentially a fantasy novel, which is, you're trying to position it in a mainstream way. My sense mm -hmm. is that, uh, that that your publishers would love to have positioned this the way uh, Bloomsbury positioned Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Mm -hmm. And that was yeah. a massive campaign. That uh, book expo happened to be in Chicago that year, so I was, I was, I was down there, and there were gigantic banners hanging over the convention hall uh, just saying Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which yeah. is, an, I think it's even a longer book. And yeah, I think it's 800 and some, yeah. It's, it's 800 and some pages, mm -hmm. and stylistically more arch. I mean, yours is a very mm -hmm. accessible, contemporary, present tense uh, kind yeah. of narration. Um, yeah. So to some extent, you want to you want to overcome the fear people might have of uh, of a long novel who are not necessarily fantasy blockbuster readers. Uh, yeah. It sounds to me like you're doing that. You're they're they're doing this with the publicity of it. Yeah, absolutely. People are are embracing it and taking a chance on it. And yeah, and I think I did write it very deliberately in a way that to be more accessible. Um, you know, I wanted it to feel immersive to feel like you're right there with characters like it's happening and i was i was quite influenced i think by hillary mantel writing in the present tense yeah, with her cromwell yeah. books um hmm. you know so that so i Which think people not, are kind of 
Sorry? Yeah. Which are not exactly slim volumes either. They're not they're not slim volumes and there's three of them. Yeah. So um yeah, so I think people are sort of had the, the pathway prepared and, and and by other books like The Historian as well, which I can't remember, mm. but it's you know, it's this big. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think the idea right. of a big historical fantasy novel, uh, you know, and rice books are are pretty hefty <laughs> for that matter. <laughs> Anyway, I should say we're getting towards a, you know, a little bit past the top of our hour. So mm-hmm. I want to say, first of all, I hope we do see you somewhere down the road in the next year or so. It would be lovely. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for making time to talk to us today. Genuinely appreciate it. And I also want to say that to everybody, the embroidered book is out in the world right now. You can get it wherever books are sold. And The Major's Conspiracy, which is your Assassin's Creed novel, will be out in August. So there are books out there in the world. But for the moment, Kate Hartfield, thank you so very, very much for talking to us today. Oh, thank you. It's been a real honor, and I cannot wait until we can uh, raise a glass of something uh, together in person and, and have yeah, a good chat. That will be. Until then, this has been the Coon Street Podcast.